Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 25th, 2022, and uh, before we get our discussion going of FDA-related events this week, we would like to say that we are that our thoughts are with the uh, the people of Ukraine and everything that's going on over there. That said, we saw some interesting moves by the FDA recently, including the emergency use authorization of a new monoclonal antibody. Sarah, you discovered while looking at this that the authorization standards may have changed or been adjusted. Right. So while um, um, all other emergency use authorizations for monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID and you know high risk and people who are kind of deemed high risk for progression um, to severe disease um, were based on trials that both looked at the, studied those patients, you know, in uh, some kind of randomized um, fashion and also collected data, um, you know, hard clinical outcomes data on their reduced risk of hospitalization or death or something of that nature. This latest um, monoclonal antibody from Lilly um, basically had randomized controlled phase two data of in the population of people not deemed high risk. So the indication is for people that are likely to be of high risk of progression, but they studied um, in the randomized part of the study, they studied people unlikely to progress. Um, and then they basically used an endpoint of um, viral load, so more of a surrogate endpoint here. Um, and there was some um, enrollment in open label parts of the study and so forth of people that fit the kind of the indication of the EUA more closely and so forth. Um, but in talking to FDA about it, it kind of seems like the company benefited from a couple things. One is just that, you know, that we've now had a lot of these similar monoclonal antibodies approved for COVID and FDA maybe seems more comfortable kind of with the mechanism of action and how this, how these products work and so forth. Um, and then there's obviously um, most of the prior approved antibodies um, do have been shown not to really work well with Omicrons and we were in a big surge and there was a need for more treatments um, and even, you know, while at the same time we had just gotten those new antiviral pills, which people were really excited about, you know, initially there was a lot of supply challenges with that. So it seems like there was a lot of, you know, practicalities FDA had to balance here and, you know, granting this EUA. And, you know, FDA did point out a couple of things, like they said that, um, you know, that's one reason they sort of, the indication is sort of worded in a way to suggest that like, you know, if there's some other alternative treatments, you might want to go that route first, um, kind of based on, you know, the amount of data they have here. They also um, basically asked Lily to provide a pretty fast, um, you know, updated protocol to obtain more data on the treatment. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to kind of see, you know, the standards, you know, sort of shift quite a bit at this point in the um, process. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in the story was that, you know, FDA seems a little more comfortable with how, like, this this class of drugs seems to be working, you know, with in treating COVID. But um, I'm wondering now if they're more comfortable maybe 
adjusting eways or pulling eways for these maps you know when they're inactive well i mean i mean yeah it, it's an it's an interest you know you just wonder if maybe that's why they're kind of you know they're more willing to be a little i don't know what you want what the word is with the data you know and and get making these available because they understand the mechanism of action they understand generally how these products work so you know and they've been experienced in kind of pulling them and not and then bringing them back or you know or i think that they didn't actually pull like they say like it's no longer authorized because of omicron but it's still kind of you can still get it i think at some point they could they have the option to bring it back if they want so you wonder if that's kind of influencing how they're kind of thinking about this this whole process now yeah i mean they certainly i think the monoclonal antibodies do seem to be the place where they've had to do the most like vigilance, you know, constantly be kind of tweaking and updating the EUAs, um, at least in the drug space. Um, because, um, right, that depending on the variants, they don't all um, really neutralize the virus and they've relied, they've had to end up relying, and even in this case, they relied on lab data and, you know, pharmacokinetic data um, to show that this monoclonal antibody was likely to be effective against Omicron. Um, so they didn't have trial data and um, I think, right, they have had to sort of be flexible with the other monoclonals in terms of as variants kind of come and go and the variants sort of, you know, it's hard to time your trials, um, you know, and the regulatory clearance appropriately for variants that, you know, it's sort of unpredictable how the virus um, has evolved. And so FDA, I think, has had to be flexible in that regard. Um, Otherwise, by the t the time you get, you know, an approval based on Omicron data, Omicron is gone, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what I wondered. Are these products going to be, by definition, sort of not durable treatments? What, you know, should we expect that they probably won't be effective for very long? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question because, like you said, we, by the time, you know, you test something, you know, the variants shifted so you don't know if, you know, if it works, keeps working. But I think the problem is FDA is afraid to say, get rid of this. It doesn't work. And because they don't know if it's going to work against the variant that's up next. Mm -hmm. So, and they want to keep that, that toolbox as full as they possibly can. That's why uh, you see with the emergency youth authorizations, they, they say like, it's no, it, you know, um, it's in it's it's clear in the listing of EUAs that have been issued. This one is no longer authorized because of Omicron, but it doesn't say it's gone. It's not like the um, the uh, the HCQ EUA is is actually gone, and it's not. I don't think it's listed anymore. But the, these ones, they I think they're 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 saying don't use it because it doesn't work against Omicron. We think, but we're reserving the right to if it works against whatever the next they decide to name the next variant Omicron. There's like several subvariants now of Omicron. If it works against one of those, then we can still bring it back without too much trouble. We've uh, written uh, and, uh, and talked a lot about uh, accelerated approval in the past year with uh, uh, Andrew Helm and the uh, the moves in the uh, um, uh, for the oncology indications. And this almost feels like uh, an accelerated authorization to me. That it's sort of uh, obviously the EUA standards are very different than uh, um, than that pathway than the uh, you know accelerated approval pathway. Uh, is but it's sort of, there's there FDA is sort of taking steps to sort of get this new 
product out as fast as as fast as it can because of the uh, the new variant. And uh, uh, you know, I'm curious for kind of what this means for eventually taking it to a uh, to BLA status, uh, moving it to, from an EUA. Uh, I know uh, Sarah or Derek. I know uh, you've written about this too. Is we're kind of does this does this make it harder for the company to eventually establish all the data it's going to need to uh, to get to to get a BLA? No, I, I think that'll be an interesting question. I know um, I don't want to like steal her story thunder, but I know Sue is work. Our colleague Sue Sutter is working on a story looking at the spike vax um, Moderna's, you know, BLA for um, their vaccine. And they didn't have to, you know, FDA didn't ask them to like get clinical data in Omicron, right, to, to, to fully clear the BLA. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see you know, how FDA thinks about full approval for these products, which are obviously different than the vaccines. Um, and certainly in terms of how they work and kind of the risks for, um, you know, if they don't work, if, if there's any, you know, negative impact on the virus and so forth. But um, yeah, I think FDA kind of might have to lay out kind of standards for approval and what that means for sponsors. But, you know, in some cases, at least with the vaccines, it looks like they have been flexible and they haven't necessarily, you know, I don't know, punished is the right word, but, you know, sponsors haven't been held sort of responsible, I guess, for how the the virus has evolved since their applications and studies um, were conducted. On the other hand, like what we've seen in waiting for Pfizer's vaccine um, review in the under five population is it does seem like FDA wants you know the, the the presence of omicron and wanting to see more data there has kind of been one of the reasons the timeline for that eua has been longer so i guess it depends a little bit on the circumstances whether you get the benefit of you know having to do that or not well and i mean regeneron has filed uh, they filed a, they filed a bla um for approval of of the regencove um treatment and they're not authorized at the moment because in the US because of the inactivity against or thought to be inactivity against the Omicron variant. So I don't think it's holding it doesn't seem to be holding anybody back in terms of, you know, you know, their their development plans. And, you know, they you know, they they obviously have, you know, uh, a, some kind of clinical program that they've put together that they feel like justifies the approval. So, you know, it's a yeah, it's a, it's an it's an interesting issue issue to think about, but uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure it's holding sponsors back all that much. I wonder if you can think about this. I don't know if they think about this in the way some people talk about like antibiotics and needing to get approval for drugs that you don't necessarily need or want to use now, but may need to use. And is there sort of a FDA justification for approving? fully approving a monoclonal antibody for COVID that doesn't really have a use at the current moment in the crisis, but could potentially down the road. I'm not sure if they would think about it that way or if they would look at, you know, the Regeneron application and say there's really no use for it at this moment. Not well, give them a- it, the, I wonder now that you're saying that if I don't. I don't know how how these are used in practice very much, but I mean, it, it, do they have like first and kind of like cancer? We have first and second line, third line, 
therapies where like if one doesn't work, you can try the other one. And if that doesn't work, you can try the third one. I I, I don't know if, if that if you can do that with treating COVID or not. But, you know, that that I mean, that could be if, if that is the case, that could be something that, the, you know, they at least want to try or at least want to make uh, possible. Also wanted to mention, uh, Sarah, you you looked at the uh, I think they called it streamlining the language on the prescribing uh the prescribing recommendations um, instead of listing them all, listing them all in the label, um, which, you know, rate, you know, uh, uh, stuck out to me in part because of the, they, they used to have um, uh, listings in there, uh, you know, talking about who's at high risk of COVID and why you, you know, those things, uh, you know, prescribers would want to take note of that, um, which has garnered a lot of criticism um, from, um, you know, from uh, Republicans, uh, you know, for, you know, for various reasons. Uh, Now, I guess it's in a, it's just a link and it's in a footnote. Uh, Did you get the sense that they were trying to kind of get at least this criticism that they've been taking over that is, you know, they're trying to just kind of get away from that or was it really legitimately just a streamlining type of You know, it's hard to really know. Um, I guess we sort of have to take FDA at their word that they were, you know, trying to just simplify, streamline the fact sheets. They noted that the anti, the more other more recent EUAs, like for the antivirals, were also done in the same way. Instead of kind of spelling out exactly who's at high risk of progression in the fact sheet, they linked. They just sort of have a footnote and link to the CDC guidance, um, which then basically has the same criteria spelled out. Um, I guess I just don't know how many people sort of interact with these fact sheets in a digital format and then would, you know, navigate or realize to go to the footnote and navigate. And so you do wonder how much that impacts prescribers thinking and who gets these treatments. Right. Obviously, as you mentioned, Republicans took some some issue with um, some of the criteria the CDC and FDA were using to be to decide who was high risk. Um, and so this certainly for F, on FDA's part, at least, you know, doesn't have them broadcasting it as much. Um, and the other thing FDA was suggesting is that, again, as the virus changes, pandemic changes, you know, perhaps like who is considered high risk shifts as well. So it's kind of linking to more of a living website that CDC is updating. Perhaps it's going to be more current. But yeah, I certainly, I th- I just thought it was like interesting how, um, you know, it went from being something very clearly sp- listed and spelled out in the main text of the fact sheet to something that you kind of have to, um, try hard to find and get to <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a lot a lot of things that just kind of the you know ongoing changes that we see we've seen throughout the pandemic and you know because we watch a lot of these things so closely is uh it's 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 interesting to interesting to watch how opinions change and 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 thinking evolves and and so forth so not to I'm expecting a lot more evolution of thinking and changes and so forth as we try and climb out of this. But uh, yeah, still interesting nonetheless. Next, we're going to take a look at another COVID-19 vaccine candidate that is apparently on the cusp of filing for an EUA. 
Sanofi and GSK announced their two-dose vaccine they developed together showed 100% efficacy against severe COVID-19 disease and hospitalization and 57.9% efficacy against any symptomatic COVID-19 disease. But the interesting part of the data for me was that they found neutralizing antibodies increased 18 to 30-fold when used as a booster in mRNA and adenovirus platforms. Sanofi and GSK received U.S. government funding, but the question now may be, where does this product fit into the armamentarium since Pfizer and Moderna have uh, a huge share of the, the U.S. market at the moment? And, you know, the, you know, the Janssen vaccine is out, is out there with an EUA in the U.S., and there's several other vaccines now coming, coming in. But uh, do, you, do you all think that these additional vaccines – could get authorized mainly as kind of booster shots, given what we've, you know, what we've already, you know, how Pfizer and Moderna have kind of taken over the, or at least taken the huge chunk of the market, you know, so far? Well, I would suspect that uh, FDA would uh, authorize them for uh, booster and for uh, initial dosing as uh, as well. I think, as you, as you said, the question is, you know, will they, uh, be used, and you know, will this change the uh, the total percentage of Americans that are uh, uh, getting vaccinated? And you know, I don't see that really happening. I don't, I don't think anyone's sort of kind of honestly holding off. Like, well, I don't trust the mRNA vaccines, but I, I do want some uh, you know uh, more traditional adjuvant uh, uh, design. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I don't see that sort of really for kind of. Uh, 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 overcoming vaccine hesitancy in any meaningful way, you know, depending on how the contracting works, and they're obviously sort of kind of easier to uh, um, uh, to store um, uh, than the, uh, the need to need to the need to freeze uh, um, mRNA uh, um, vaccines, so they could uh, um, be more widely stocked uh, for that reason. So uh, um, it's a uh, um, it's a question of sort of kind of. Uh, are they just going to be used instead of the mRNA vaccines, or will they actually change the uh, the market in a meaningful way? And I don't see them um, really transforming to kind of how uh, people take uh, vaccines in the U.S. Uh, you know, they're uh, um, there's they're easier uh, supply chain issues, or could make them uh, more uh, um, useful uh, um, in other parts of the world. Although we're starting to see sort of reports that sort of even uh, um, even in Africa, um, there are uh, some questions about uh, uh, whether uh, um, uptake has stalled uh, a because of uh, logistics and or b because uh, of hesitancy in the those populations as well. So, uh, um, what uh, um, what becomes of all these vaccines is uh, is an open question for for me. Yeah, because it's interesting to me that um, in reading this the story um, that these companies are sort of forced to apply for right for U.S. approval and so forth, um, and some other countries because of the money they got from the government support to do this. But yeah, I guess I sort of wonder, is there is there more of a place for them in other parts of the world than the US? But, but the other thing I'm wondering is if maybe they'll conduct or do any studies down the line to um, look at like the durability of the vaccines. Because one thing it seems like a lot of people have been thinking about or questioning is how durable these mRNA vaccines are because they're such a new technology with not a lot of, you know, clinical experience in it. And if if there's any chance that these um, more traditional vaccine te technologies are more durable and would require less, you know, um, need for boosting and adjustments, that could be interesting down the line. Um, 
but I, I know there was, again, there had been at certain points some speculation that maybe the J&J &J vaccine um, was more durable than, um, than mRNA ones, but I haven't really necessarily seen any, you know, new studies or um, trials to that effect. But since it does seem like there's some expectation that, you know, we're going to be living with some this virus for a while and potentially will need more um, boosters at some point, I think that could be interesting. So it's not like, um, it doesn't seem like in two years, nobody's going to be getting COVID vaccines anymore. So there could be some, you know, interesting commercial opportunities if they, you know, kind of can do the right studies and make that case, I guess. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is, that, you know, with, with the flu shot, nobody really knows or cares what brand they get just for, for the most part, you know, whereas, you know, we were all, you know, jokingly saying, you know, we were all proud of the fact that, you know, I was proud that I got a Pfizer vaccine the first time. And, you know, and I, I you know, I joked with the people who got the Moderna one. I mean, you know, but the fact that people knew that was uh, unique to the pandemic. And, you know, if you going forward, if, if it turns out we have to get regular shots like we do with a flu shot, then maybe this one has a place where they just say, here you go and don't tell you, you know, what it is. And they just happen, you know, that these happen to be the ones they got that day and or the, the ones that they had in stock. And, you know, if it's a Pfizer one, fine. If it's a Moderna one, fine. If, but if it's a Sanofi or a Janssen one, then that's fine, too. So, you know, we could be getting to, the, you know, I could see that, you know, kind of if we get to that point, then all of these vaccines just to, you know, make that you know, just to make them all available for the people, people who want to get the the annual shots would be, um, you know, there, there could be, you know, maybe a place, a place for them there. Finally, today, we're going to take a look at biosimilars costs and spending. Kathy, you looked at a study the inspector general wants to uh, conduct on this subject, right? Yes, I did. So the HHS Office of Inspector General is planning a study on biosimilar use in Medicare Part B. So in Part B, we're talking about physician-administered drugs like um, oncology agents, supportive care drugs like EPO and Nulasta, and immunology like Remicaid. Um, in, in the announcement of the study, OIG notes it is concerned that uptake of biosimilars is low. So the study will con compare spending on biosimilars versus the reference drugs, including beneficiary spending and estimate how much beneficiaries could have saved if they used a biosimilar. Um, as a reminder, in Part B, beneficiaries are responsible for paying for 20% of the list price of a drug. Um, so the study could lend support to additional Medicare reimbursement policies designed to increase the uptake of biosimilars, something that advocates have been pushing for. Um, there are some Medicare policies already in place to, that are meant to promote biosimilars or at least to avoid discouraging use. One is that biosimilars have a unique reimbursement code of their own um, as opposed to having a shared code which would um, lead to a blended average payment amount um, that they would share with other biosimilars referencing the same innovator and could potentially be a lower uh, payment than, you know, than, they, than their price. Um, the other policy is a variation of the average sales price plus 6% formula to um, ASP of the reference drug plus 6%. So that's meant to counter the possibility that prescribers 
will opt for the more expensive drug because their add-on payment is based on you know the cost of the drug and they would get more money with the more expensive drug um, biosimilar advocates have urged further steps they they don't feel that those policies are enough um, one policy that's been promoted in recent years is that biosimilars would be paid for at ASP of the reference drug plus 8%, and the other is a shared savings program between prescribers and Medicare. These policies have not really been able to advance, but the OIG study could help. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's sort of interesting to look at some recent biosimilar trend reports. Amgen issued one recently, and so did Cardinal Health, the wholesaler. Um, because OIG might find that uptake isn't quite as low as they think. <laughs> those, those trend reports have shown that biosimilar uptake in certain categories like oncology in particular has really been pretty strong and that biosimilars collectively dominate market share in, in, those, in those sectors where there are biosimilars. Um, and even in preventive care, although that's been slower, um, uptake has been pretty good. The one area where uptake has been slow is is for in biosimilars for Remicade, um, and there there are probably reasons for that that are different than oncology. Among them, rebating. Um, but it'll be interesting in any case to to see, you know, how the OIG um, sort of comes down on this question. The the studies expected to be completed next year. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering mostly what happens if they say everything is fine. <laughs> because we've heard will. for so yeah. long that it's not fine. So I, yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> I doubt they'll say it's fine, but they might realize that um, maybe some policies need to be more targeted to categories. Not quite sure how you do that, but um, I, I think what what we're seeing the difference with between say. The oncology biosimilars and biosimilars for Remicade is that, um, in general, I think oncologists have been more open to biosimilars. They're, they tend to be more open to sort of trying different drugs as they manage patients. There's a lot of off-label use. Um, oncologists are pretty um, sensitive to cost. Um, when, on the other hand, in the immunology um, area, Prescribers or doctors are, are more reluctant to switch patients once they're stable on, you know, a drug. Um, and, and rebating is just more of a factor in that area. And that, you know, that's that would be tough to deal with in a Medicare reimbursement policy. Kathy, I was curious what you were saying about uh, these plans that were kind of uh, let the uh, prescriber you know, share some of the savings that the mm -hmm. uh, government would generate from uh, biosimilars. They seem like they've been uh, pretty successful. I think you cited something that the Express Scripts did on the uh, you know the private payer uh, uh, side that's fa found a uh, um, found that works. What's what's been holding that back? I mean, you talked about some of the sort of the uh, the more sort of kind of uh, um, uh, you know uh, philosophical factors in the different uh, specialties. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oncologists. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, used for kind of trying trying different things just for given the nature of the disease and uh, and uh, you know the, the variety of options that are out there and the uh, yeah. evolving protocols but for kind of what uh, you know uh, uh, what what do you think could for kind of uh, uh, encourage the uptake of those kinds of uh, uh, cost uh, 
you know, savings sharing uh, programs. You know, I th it does seem like a good idea. It would probably have to be a demonstration project. Um, and, you know, those are just more cumbersome to put together and to to launch. I suspect that has a lot to do with, you know, why that hasn't gotten off the ground. Um, the, you know, just tweaks to reimbursement could be more straightforward. Um, there's been legislation, you know, that that um, would implement some of those, the shared savings programs that just has that haven't haven't advanced. Um, well, interesting. It'll be interesting to see if uh, um, uh, OIG is explicit about this and if they, uh, um, uh, the report comes out at a time when Congress is uh, thinking about making changes on that and uh, what, what, what happens with the report. Yeah, it is. There are a couple of biosimilars coming along that, that would um, compete against the, the highest ticket um, items in Part B in the drug area, and that's ILEA and Lucentis. So it could be very timely. Um, uh, there could be some attention being paid to to those costs and how the, those can be, um, you know, defrayed with biosimilars. Yeah, it's very interesting. We'll have to, uh, you know, we'll be sure we'll be paying attention. Uh, 2020, 2023 is also the year that the Humira biosimilars start coming up, coming along too, which is another, you know, a lot of people are to keep saying is like a red letter date for. Yeah the market so yeah that one you know interestingly is is part d as in david yeah. so that wouldn't be fall under this umbrella but yeah definitely that'll be a big year for for biosimilars i wouldn't be surprised if if people try and take some things from the report and and use it and try maybe. and use it in, in the part d space so maybe yeah <laughs> well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.